Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, hope you're having a wonderful day, maybe a morning if you're joining us early in the morning or afternoon on your drive home from work or whenever you may be listening in to this podcast. We're grateful to have you today. I wanted to let you know that today's episode is going to be a little bit different for us from our other episodes. It's actually a sermon that Scott did back in March at his church, Church of the Redeemer. So um, it's a great sermon on the temptation of Jesus and unpacking the drama and its implications for us as we live out the kingdom in our life. And so I know you'll really enjoy that. Before we jumped into that episode, I wanted to remind you that we have coming up at Northern the Theology and Mission Lectureship. That's coming up Thursday, June 8th, and Friday morning, June 9th. Would love to have you join us with Stanley Hauerwas as he investigates the question about do we still need the church? And I'll include links in the show notes to sign up and register for that. Um, So we'd love to have you uh, for that. Also, there's going to be an open house, both uh, digitally and a live in-person Uh, open house in accordance with that event. So if you've been thinking about just seminary education and and maybe Northern's one of them on your list, we'd love to have you and uh, have you for that open house, either through the Northern Live platform or through the um, in-person on on our campus on um, that June 8th. So um, you can learn more and sign up for either of these two opportunities at seminary.edu slash onmission17. Again, that link is seminary.edu slash onmission17. Well, we're grateful once again to have you join us today, and we hope you enjoy Scott's sermon. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a sermon from Scott on the drama of Jesus' temptation. Every good novel, every great story, every decent story is found in the story of the Bible, and the story of the temptation of Jesus is at the heart of this story. So if you read, uh, I don't know who your novelists are, I've been reading lately P.G. Woodhouse, who probably wouldn't be characterized as a great novelist, but he's awfully funny, and I love Bertie Wooster if you care, or if you read about Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, I think Gandalf's in Lord of the Rings, (laughs) or Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, or if you watch a movie of the unrecognized African-American women in Hidden Figures who made NASA successful, you know they all create these stories in such a way that there is a plot Good versus evil, tension, suspense, often a battle and a victory, and the, a loser. We like to see losers in, in our stories. Schadenfreude is the German word we use for delight in the defeat of our enemies. And we all like this and enjoy it. And I think the uh, temptation has to be seen this way because there is an ongoing narrative in the Bible into which the temptation fits. And I think that this ongoing narrative has two components, Eden 
and the wilderness wanderings of Israel. In Eden, God creates Adam and Eve, and He gives to them the first challenge of life on earth if they would like to rule the world for God. But they only have one responsibility. It doesn't seem like, you know, you read it, it doesn't seem like all that big of a challenge. Not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. A lot of ofs in there. Um, and you're, you're not supposed to eat this, uh, but this symbolizes and represents the command of God upon human beings if they're going to be obedient, and therefore it represents their foolishness and stupidity and disobedience because they choose to eat of this. In Eden, we also meet the opponent of the Bible, and that is the serpent, a talking snake. And this serpent will have a life in the story of the Bible, and it will go on and on, and we'll see this serpent over and over in the Bible. In Eden, the serpent wins. Adam and Eve are banned from Eden, and they go east, so John Steinbeck can have the title for a book, which I have not read. It's all make-believe novel stuff. Eden remains behind them and beyond them and in their future if they want to enter this story again. And from this time on, the Bible tells us that the prince of darkness or the powers or the serpent will be weaseling his way into the people of God and wreaking havoc. And if you read Genesis 4 through 11, that's exactly what you see, the first play script ever for Dumb and Dumber. It is an amazing set of foolishness that uh, crops up in Genesis 4 through 11. There is a second component to this narrative of the temptation, and that's the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Between Egypt and Sinai and entering into the land of Israel, or the holy land, Israel is called to be obedient, but God wants to test these people. In a sense, He wants to tempt these people to obedience and disobedience. So He puts them in a very difficult situation, and Israel chooses, like Adam and Eve, not to obey. And as a result, the opponent was delighted in the disobedience of Israel, the children of Israel, and the children of Israel die out in the land, and they do not enter into the Holy Land. They die in the wilderness, not even Moses gets to enter the land. And then Israel's long history of kings and prophets and people and leaders and the temple, we see a long history of some obedience mixed with lots of disobedience, always in a sense of a hope to a return to Eden, a hope for the Holy Land to flourish and to become the land that God has promised it to be. All behind this this promise that God wants His human people to rule on earth on His behalf. But no, Israel will not do it. Adam and Eve will not do it. And the hope remains, and it didn't look good for Israel generation after generation until Jesus. And this is where the story of the temptation occurs. It is smack dab in the middle of the Bible's great story of finding the obedient one who will rule on God's behalf 
in the world that God has created. An editor at InterVarsity, not Ethan, once told me that when she, and her initials are Cindy Bunch, (laughs) when she gets a manuscript from a professor, she skips the first chapter and usually the first two because, she said, they have these long introductions, and she said, no one cares, just get started with your book. With this professor-type introduction, I now get started with the temptation. (laughs) And Ethan can tell Cindy that she was quoted favorably uh, in church. She's an Anglican, too. We're looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the first point I'd like to make about this marvelous text is that Satan knows who Jesus is, this serpent. You know, all the enemies of the Bible are all represented in Satan in Matthew chapter 4. There is a cosmic battle here. This is the battle of the wilderness or the battle in the wilderness. And Satan knows who Jesus is. The three temptations, notice, are spirit-prompted. Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. He didn't uh, wander into the wilderness and accidentally find himself tempted. The Spirit, after the baptism, drives Jesus backward before he can enter back into the land to reinvoke Israel's story, before he can call the twelve who will rule like the twelve tribal leaders. He goes into the wilderness, and it is not pretty. You can see it at any time of the year. This is not a place you want to be. The the Spirit-prompted temptation is also mirrored by a Satan-instigated set of temptations. So you can say it's a Spirit-prompted test and a Satan-instigated temptation, three of them. Now, this makes some of us very uncomfortable in our modern world as so scientific that uh, we've got Satan, some demonic being, tempting Jesus. And uncomfortable as it may be to moderns about spirits in the world, this is the Bible's biggest showdown because the Bible's narrative is ultimately cosmic. It is not simply political and earthly. It is the battle between Satan and God in the world. And so this showdown occurs in the wilderness, spirit-prompted and Satan-instigated. Jesus is in the middle. The story is set. The tension has been created for those who really believe that this is a test. And there are theologians who debate this. And you can ask the theologians about what these, these terms mean. But there is a debate about whether Jesus could have sinned Passe pecare, or not possible to sin, non passe pecare, or not possible not to sin, non passe non pecare, or possible not to sin, passe non pecare. I think I got them all right. And this is a debate in the history of what could happen here, but it makes no sense to the story if this is not a genuine test of Jesus as the Son of God in the middle of a cosmic battle between Satan 
and God as he is tested in the wilderness. Every battle in the Bible is found in this 40-day battle with Jesus. The Garden of Eden, Abraham and Ur, Moses in Egypt, David and Goliath in the Elah Valley where April took a picture yesterday, prophets versus the kings, Israel in exile, Israel rebuilding the temple, Jesus under Herod the Great. It's all coming to climax in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And Satan tests Jesus' manhood, his sonhood, his future to rule. Satan knows who Jesus is and what his mission is, and Satan has one mission, and that is to subvert the Son of God and relive in his own schadenfreude his victory in Eden and his victory in the wilderness, and Jesus is put to the test. As Son of God, he says, this isn't a question if he is the Son of God. This is an assumption that it's true. As Son of God, he could provide for himself apart from relying upon God's Word. Turn these stones to bread. Now, if you've been in this area, that's all it is, is stones. Brown, uh, Arizona-like, Mesa-colored-like, and it's not very attractive, and it's not very interesting. It goes on and on in a bleak reality, and this is where Jesus is, and he is tempted to turn these stones to bread because of his power, because the Spirit of God at work in him, and because he is the Son of God. As Son of God, as a king, he could create his own spectacle. And every tour guide will tell you where this spectacle occurred. At the highest point of the temple. This sounds to me like it's on the top of the temple, but some think it's at the top, highest part of the wall in the southeast corner. You can, you can debate that um, until Jesus wins, uh, but you will not know from the text where the highest point in the temple is. And he could send angels to protect. As Son of God, and now this one is almost like a transportation of a Christmas carol, uh, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, where he gets to go to different scenes. And here, Jesus is placed, and he can see all the mountains of the world, and he can see all the kingdoms of the world, and now finally Satan offers him what is exactly come for to rule the world. You can have it, he says. Just worship me. Because he knows who he is. He's the future king, and he wants him to be king in his way, not in God's way. Clever being that Satan is, of course, Satan runs around the whole story. Instead of allowing Jesus to do the will of God, he wants to give him the victory before he's been through the test. He wants Jesus to rule as the throne on the throne of the world apart from the way of God, and Satan doesn't know what this way is. Jesus knows something of this way, but he knows that this is not the time, just as it was not the time when his mother came to him at Cana and said, you know, they've run out of wine. He says, this is not my hour. This is not his hour. Food and protection are nothing but setups for the final temptation, the one concerning the rule of world. 
Talking about setups, I got to thinking this week of how I think America right now is being set up not to allow Jesus to be the king. I've never seen our citizenry so preoccupied with an election. I'm 63. I get to make a little bit of this judgment. There are a few older than me in the room. Okay? I don't know if you are or not. You're 50? I, I wish you. I've never seen our citizenry so preoccupied, not only with the election, but now that the election's over, still with the election. Diana Butler Bass announced this week in an article in Washington Post, I loved it. She said, for Lent, I'm giving up Trump. (laughs) And I thought, more people need to give up Trump because Trump has become such a distraction for the church to be about its own business of the kingdom of God, of Jesus at the center of the world, of evangelism and world mission and growth in spirituality. Satan was not preoccupied by Trump. Satan was fully occupied with Jesus because he knew exactly who this was. This was the Son of God who was to rule, and if he was to rule, the prince of darkness would be defeated. Lent is about aligning ourselves with the right team. Lent is about seeing that we are on Jesus' side in the midst of colossal distractions. The second observation I have is that Jesus knew who Jesus was. This is important. He knows who he is. He knew that he was the Son of God because at the baptism, just before this text, it is said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus heard this as his Father's public, very public, affirmation in a strategic location in the Jordan River to announce that this is the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, Satan now says. But Jesus knows who he is. And twice in this text, Satan begins his statements by saying, since you are the Son of God. Jesus' identity is discovered in the narrative of the Bible and in the narrative of this text. He was in the wilderness. Now, Bible readers recognize what the wilderness is. This is the place where Israel wandered before it entered the land. So he's out there preparing himself to re-enter the land with his 12 chosen followers to renew the promise of God. Now, notice that Jesus quotes back to Satan from one specific text in the book of Deuteronomy. Three times the devil tempts him while Jesus is fasting, and Jesus quotes from the same passage in the Bible, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Mic drop, mic drop, mic drop. This is a profound moment when Jesus clearly reveals that he will not be like Adam and Eve in the garden or Israel in the wilderness. He will be the obedient Son of God, always doing. Jesus fasts for 40 days. Only 
Those who don't pay attention to numbers in the Bible will miss this. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 days. This becomes an intensification of a 40-year wilderness temptation. Jesus gets in 40 days what Israel got in 40 years. Furthermore, Israel disobeys for 40 years. Jesus obeys for 40 days to reverse the story that has been told. He knows, in other words, that he's not only the second Adam of Edom, he is the second Israel of the wilderness. And third, Jesus knows what to do. He knows what to do. He's the Son of God. He knows who he is, and he knows what that means. He is to obey the will of God. And so when Satan tempts him to give him exactly what he's come for, he chooses to obey God. This narrative has one major point, and that is this, that Jesus wins the battle in the wilderness. And it's not like it was a Roman amphitheater or a Roman uh, battle where you would have thousands of people watching and clapping. He's all by himself in the wilderness, conquering the world. The irony of it all is like the child being born in Bethlehem where nobody seems to care that this is the future king of Israel. A friend of mine named Randy Harris outlines the book of Revelation this way. God's team wins. Choose your team. Don't be stupid. (laughs) That's Revelation. God's going to win. This is the beginning of the apocalypse. This is the beginning of that battle. Jesus wins the battle. So it's a summons about whether you will be on his team and not be stupid like Adam and Eve, like Israel, like Moses, like David, like the kings, like the northern kingdom, like the southern kingdom, like those who had to go into exile in Babylon. Unlike Adam, Jesus does the will of God. Unlike Israel, Jesus does the will of God. And from the temptation on in the life of Jesus, we learn nothing but footnotes that have occurred in the battle in the wilderness. From this point on, Jesus will be, will be tested, will be tempted, but he has already secured the victory because he showed Satan what it was. As Jesus says no, no, no to Satan in the wilderness, and as he gave the big no to death, on the cross because he was saying yes to resurrection on Easter. As we enter into Lent, we realize that Jesus is the victor. The brass needs to blast away at this point in the narrative. The drums need to sound their beats, and we need sopranos like Celine Dion to go high and to sing the song of victory for Jesus because this is the day the battle was won. Now, the narrative ends, the devil left him. I have to be irreverent because it's only true of Satan. Satan surely said, damn. (laughs) He surely had to say this because he knew what that word meant and that he had lost in the great battle. At least he muttered it. you got to admit that. Probably in German, because it would be more guttural. (laughs) But he will do his best to penetrate the disciples from this point on 
and he does in a man named Judas. And he will penetrate as deep as he can get because he wants this victory. But the angels who are depicted in the Bible, and if you listen to the hum of angels in the Bible, you'll know that they care. They're always concerned. I'm sure they came to Jesus because it says that the angels gathered around him. And they said, wow, that was cool. (laughs) We were wondering what was going to happen and how you were going to do this. And they were saying, that was awesome. We were in suspense. What's left? What's left for you to do? Little did the angels know. Well, finally, this thing's not sticking very well. I'd like to take it off. Finally, we know who we are and what we are to do because we know who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus, we learn in the temptation, and I have to tell you that it is pretty superficial to say that what we learn from the temptation is that we have to memorize Bible verses in our Bible pack so we will know how to deal with Satan when he comes our way. Yes, but that's only a glance of the big vision of what's happening here. Because when we see what Jesus is doing overall in this battle, we can see what this means for us. Jesus is the way of obedience. Unlike Adam, he obeyed. Unlike Israel, he obeyed. Therefore, his obedience entitles him and authorizes him to rule in the kingdom of God. The most significant implication of the temptation for you and for me is that we should be grateful that Jesus won the battle in the wilderness. That's why I say the brass needs to play. This is a victorious moment where we should be clapping for Jesus in the wilderness. Lent is about gratitude as well. God has assumed his rule in this world through Jesus. When I think of God's rule in this world, I think of my colleague at Northern Seminary named Wayne Gordon, who recently had a dinner, talked about his church in Lawndale in the city of Chicago. Now listen to this. He said there's, he has a thousand people in his church. He said, there is not one family in my church that doesn't have a personal story of murder. And he wept because he said, I don't know how long I can fight this battle. And he looked at us. Most of us were white in the room, comfortable, suburban. And he said, maybe there's one in your megachurch. When we think of the temptation, we think of Jesus winning that kind of battle and our participating in that victory and living into that victory with one another in Christ. We dare not think that this is just some cute story for a flannel graph, if you know what that is. If you're bald, you know what that is. This is a story of the victory of good versus evil. This is Star Wars in reality. This is Narnia's victory. This is the Lord of the Rings' victory. This is the victory of Jesus over evil. The serpent sometimes seems out of control in our world. And sometimes we don't see that Jesus is the Lord 
and he's ruling. We have something to say to the serpent. We say daily, you are not in control. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he is the true ruler of this world. Lent is about living under Jesus as the king. The mission of God now, this is what the the temptation is about. The mission of God is now clear. God rules this world through his son, his tested and obedient son. He will die during Holy Week and be raised. And we are tempted to lose our way and to lose the North Star that Jesus is the one who truly rules in this world. Our mission is to expand, to enhance, and to exaggerate the mission of God in Christ in this world wherever we go. It is shallow, I suggest, to say that all we have to do is learn to quote Bible verses. Instead, we learn to see the theology at work in the temptation that the battle has been fought, that Jesus is the winner, and that we get to participate in his victory. Lent is about learning to align ourselves again with the mission of God in this world to rule through Christ. And as we turn to this table today, we gladly confess and participate that the victory of Jesus in the temptation is the victory that we eat and drink together and celebrate that he is the victor in the battle of the wilderness. Thank you. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed Scott's sermon. I know I was uh, encouraged by the fact of how we have an opportunity to live out the victory that Jesus has given us in this cosmic battle that he's won. And before you go, I wanted to let you know, if you'd be interested in listening to any more of Scott's sermons that he's done at his church, I've included a link to that in the show notes, and um, I'm, I'm sure you would love to to have you listen and join in on those. Um, also, one last reminder about our annual Theology and Mission Lectureship. That's coming up. We'd love to have you join us for that with Stanley Hauerwas. And um, that link, again, is in the show notes, but it's pretty simple. It's seminary.edu slash onmission17, and we'd love to have you um, come out for that, either in person or streaming in online, because we're going to be um, live streaming that out. So thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to being with you again as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 